Father, I am, I am grateful for your design and your wisdom in, in uh, putting us together in church families and church bodies. And I am, I am, I have been privileged and I'm grateful for the, for the opportunity to be a part of this church family. And I thank you, Lord, for all the, the, uh, all the people who minister in various ways um, to serve one another and to serve outside of this church. And um, just very grateful for that. Very grateful for Pastor Ryan and his family too. And our deacons, our deaconesses, our elders, Sunday school teachers, our children's church workers, those who work in the nursery, our custodian, our trustee, um, those who work with sound, video, music, uh, lots of behind-the-scenes work, uh, just... Uh, you have knit us together and you have gifted us to serve you. Now we attend to your preached word and we ask that your Holy Spirit would work within us your word. When we encounter your word, it is you that is speaking to us. What a tremendous privilege we have in having this scripture um, and especially in our situation where we can have multiple copies in our in each home um, and multiple opportunities to to read and study and to hear others teach and so forth. <clears throat> Help us now to attend to your word. We ask that you would remove distractions and that your spirit would minister to each one of us accordingly. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Um, a parent, let's see. Does this work or not? Okay, you don't know. Is it on? That's a good question. I have no idea. Anyway, um, we'll find out if it works. A parent decided it was time to talk to her son about receiving the Lord, about asking Jesus into his life. She said, Benji, would you like to have Jesus in your heart? Um... And Benji answered her very seriously, saying, No, I don't think I want the responsibility. (laughs) I don't think I want the responsibility. Well, Benji's not wrong. There is a responsibility in being a Christian. There is a responsibility in being a disciple of Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 8 in your Bible. Matthew chapter 8. It's on page 892. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 22. Thanks. Was it off? Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, that's how you turn it off. All right. Cool. Maybe next week I'll get that right. Um, This passage talks about discipleship. It talks about discipleship. What is a disciple? A disciple is a follower of Jesus. A disi- very simply, a disciple is a Christian. A disciple is a Christian. A Christian is a disciple. If you are a genuine Christian, if you are a believer, if you claim to have a relationship with the Son of God, you are a disciple of Jesus. Um, all throughout the book of Acts, for instance, um, believers are disciples and disciples are believers. There's, there's no two-tier system in Christianity where you have the general population that call themselves Christians, and then there's this, this upper level of 
highly committed Christians that are disciples, and they're called disciples. That's not the way the Bible refers to it. The Bible looks at all followers of Jesus Christ as a disciple. So if you're a follower of Christ, you are a disciple. Acts chapter 11, verse 26, says that it was at Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. Now, Pastor Ryan, the last couple of weeks, has remind us, reminded us of the fact that the word disciple The word literally means a student or a learner, one who is being taught. A disciple of Jesus is a lifelong student of Jesus. And also he's reminded us that we are to make disciples. Disciples make disciples. We are to make disciples wherever we go when he's preaching on the Great Commission. That is, we are to tell others about Jesus and teach them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. And this is what the church has been doing for the last 20 centuries when it exploded from that small church nucleus in Jerusalem and has exploded to cover the globe. So what is it that Jesus wants from his followers? What does he want from his disciples? What kind of disciples is Jesus looking for? Hence the title of the message, Qualities That Jesus Wants. It's not qualities that he's personally looking for to enhance his own person, but qualities from us as disciples. What is it that Jesus looks for in us? So there are a number of things. And this passage that we're going to look at unpacks a couple of them. In this passage, Matthew tells us about an incident where a couple of different people came up to Jesus and had discussions with him, conversations with him about following him, about being a disciple. And this gives us then some insight about what Jesus wants, qualities that he's looking for. So let's look at chapter 8, verse 18. I'm going to read through verse 22. When Jesus saw large crowds around him, he gave the order to go to the other side of the sea. A scribe approached him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus told him, Foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Lord, another of his disciples said, First let me go bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. So we have two people here that came to Jesus and talked to him about following him. And Jesus' response to each one may be a little bit surprising to you. For instance, the first guy is a scribe. He's a teacher of the law. And he seems to strike the right note. He says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. I mean, why wouldn't Jesus immediately sign the guy up? He, he's saying the right things. I'm go- I want to follow you, and I want to follow you wherever you go. What more could Jesus ask for? Now, scribes are knowledgeable. They're educated. They're teachers themselves. They know the scriptures. And further, Jesus doesn't have, to our knowledge, doesn't have a scribe as a follower at this point. Scribes are often the ones who are questioning him and disparaging Jesus and providing conflict with Jesus. Wouldn't it be good to have a scholar on board? Wouldn't it be good to have a scribe on board? And maybe one who could deflect the attacks of other scribes, and maybe one who would attract more scribes to follow Jesus' movement and be a part of that band. And this guy is willing to go everywhere with Jesus. But Jesus seems to, you know, Jesus immediately uh, is, it seems like he's discouraging him a little bit. And then the second guy makes a very reasonable request. He comes with a reasonable request, his dad's funeral. But Jesus tells him to skip the funeral and follow him now. So the one is eager, and Jesus says, it's a hard life. And the other seems to have a legitimate schedule conflict, and Jesus says, nope, 
The bus is leaving right now, or the boat is leaving right now. You need to follow right now. See, Jesus knew what was in a man. The scriptures tell us in John chapter 2, he knew what was in a man. He knew what was in each person. For instance, the rich young ruler who came to Jesus, Jesus knew that this man had a money issue. His money was his idol. Money was his God. And so he addressed that. When he dealt with the woman at the well, he knew her past. He knew that she had, had multiple marriages and that she was currently living in sexual sin. And so he, he knew that, and he, he addressed that. He knew, and he knew what these two disciples needed to hear as well. And this, this passage that we just read, is God's word to us. And so we need to hear it as well. We need to hear the lessons from this particular passage. So let's learn from the scribe first. The scribe says he'll go anywhere with Jesus, but Jesus says to him, I have no place to lay my head. Jesus said, the, the scribe says, I'll go anywhere, and Jesus says, I have nowhere. <laughs> there is no where about what I do, or there is no comfortable where. Are you willing to count the cost? Are you willing to pay the price? Yes, I've done miracles, and yes, people come to hear me, but it's not all glory. <laughs> There's a lot that is uncomfortable. Jesus wants this guy to count the cost. You see the glamour of the crowds and so forth. But the Son of Man is on the move. What is it that Jesus is looking for? He's looking for determined commitment. He's looking for determined, a resolved commitment to follow him no matter what. He wants the scribe to know the hardship of discipleship. He wants him to know the hardship of discipleship. Often Jesus will go into difficult places, and so will his disciples. Oftentimes Jesus does not have creature comforts that others have, And that's also true of Jesus' disciples. In the very next passage, we read of Jesus' disciples following him. Look at verse 23, 8.23. As he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Okay, there we have disciples following him. Look at verse 24. Suddenly a violent storm arose on the sea so that the boat, boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was sleeping. And the disciples came and woke him up, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to die. So these disciples were following Jesus. They followed him in the boat, and they followed him right into a storm, right? And this, I'm not really preaching on this passage, but this is a significant storm because these disciples were fishermen. They were used to the Sea of Galilee. They were used to storms. This was an unusual storm. This was a bad storm. And they got it because they're following Jesus. But in the midst of that storm, then, they see the glory of Christ, and the character of Christ is revealed in the midst of that storm. But what Jesus is saying to the scribe is very true. You follow me, you're going to follow me into difficult, some difficult straits sometimes. You're going to follow me and it's going to lead to storms. The the Christian life is not always a bed of roses. There's the promise of the bed of roses at the end. (laughs) Heaven's great. But the, the Christian life is not always a bed of roses. And it doesn't always, it, it solves some problems, but sometimes it creates other problems. Jesus said, you know, I have not come to bring peace, but I come to bring a sword, and it will divide a mother from her daughter and a father from a son and a mother-in-law from her daughter-in-law. It will cause problems to follow Jesus occasionally. There will be hardships. 
I'll give you a preview towards the end of the sermon, though. It's worth the price. (laughs) The hardships are worth the price. But it will cause, sometimes, problems. Jesus informs the scribe that sacrifices may be required. Sacrifices may be required. He wants him to know that to become a follower of Jesus, his life is going to change, and sacrifices are going to be required. Are you willing to make sacrifices in order to follow the Lord? Following Jesus may require a career change. It may involve the loss of friends. It may mean a move. It may involve a difficult conversation or several difficult conversations. A disciple of Jesus should be willing to be uncomfortable. Jesus had nowhere to lay his head. Are you willing to be uncomfortable for the Lord Jesus? There's also a sense of homelessness. A sense of homelessness. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Birds have nests, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Are you willing, Mr. Scribe, to follow me to Nowheresville and to be there for a long time? There is a sense in which believers today are also homeless There is no location on earth that affords the believer a true home. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven, Philippians 3.20. 1 Peter 1.1 talks about us being aliens and strangers, as sojourners in this world. You know, we sing that song, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. The values of the world are not our values. The convictions of the world are not our convictions. The goals of this world are not our goals. Sometimes it's difficult to have a real camaraderie with those who don't know Christ, with the people of the world. And friendship is possible, of course, but at the core levels, at the the most basic levels, we're so different. That's why Scripture encourages, more than encourages, says do not be yoked with unbelievers. Believers should not marry unbelievers because at the very bottom, at the very core, you know, where soul connects to soul, there is a vast difference. There is an allegiance to God on the one hand and an anti-God stance on the other. Maybe not an active one, but there's an allegiance to other idols on the other hand. There's a sense of homelessness. The faith of the culture is not our faith. The gods of this culture is not our God. To be a disciple of Jesus means that you will likely often not feel quite at home in this world. Disciples are self-denying. This passage comes in the midst of chapters 8 and 9, Matthew 8 and 9. And Matthew 8 and 9, there's a high cluster of miracles. When Matthew wrote his gospel, he put a lot of these miracles accounts of Jesus in, in chapters 8 and 9. And what's interesting about that is that Jesus is working to... Uh, he, he, makes the, he improves the lives of many people in chapters 8 and 9, but he denies himself many of natural creature comforts that everyone else has. And that's going to be the case for the disciple as well many times. Jesus said in, a little bit later in Matthew's Gospel, if anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. 
Let's consider then the other would-be follower of Jesus in verses 21 and 22. Let me just read that again for you. Verse 21, Lord, another of his disciples said, first let me go bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. So first of all, let me just answer, attempt to answer a couple questions about interpretation. You know, was the, father's, was the man's father already dead? And the other question would be, what, what does Jesus mean by let the dead bury their own dead? First of all, was the man's father already dead? I don't, I don't think so. In that culture, if someone died, you buried him the same day. I mean, they had no means of preservation. You would, you would put them in the ground the same day. So if his father was actually dead, he would not be standing in front of Jesus talking about it. He would be going and he would, he would already be burying his father. So I'm not, sure, I'm not sure we can be sure what the situation is here. Perhaps his father is close to death. And he wants to put off following Jesus until um, that, that occasion comes. Or perhaps his father is fine, but he feels a certain tie to his family that will not be accomplished until, uh, you know, until the next transition when his father passes. Or perhaps he wants to be around for the inheritance, <laughs> just to make sure that comes his way, and then he will go and follow Jesus. We don't know, we don't know exactly what the situation is there. Whatever it is, Jesus sees in this man something that needs to be squelched or replaced by an allegiance to Christ. Uh, maybe, maybe family is a god. Maybe Jesus sees that family is sort of a god to this man, or maybe family is just an excuse for something else. Maybe it's a reluctance to be all in, or some sort of hesitation, or some sort of laziness on the part of this man. Whatever it is, Jesus pushes the man to overcome it. And then what does Jesus mean by let the dead bury their own dead? I think he means let the spiritually dead, let those, let unbelievers bury the dead, the physically dead. Let the spiritually dead take care of the physically dead because I have a ministry for you. I have a ministry for you. Let others take care of the work uh, that, that, that comes uh, with regards to funerals or whatever. If you're my disciple, Jesus is saying, your priority is me. There are others who can take care of this matter, but I need disciples who will do ministry now. John MacArthur rightly says, I think, that Jesus is not forbidding here. He's not forbidding, that, forbidding Christians to go to funerals. I mean, this is not a blanket prohibition that you should never go to a funeral, but that you should be out sharing the gospel instead of going to that funeral. Uh, I don't think that's what it is. It's, it's more of a proverb. Jesus is quoting a proverb here or, or creating a proverb that illustrates or highlights the importance of the fact that we must put the Lord first. Now, having said that, some have, found, have taken this passage literally. Um, I'll just give you an example. John, John McNeil was a well-known Scottish preacher in the 1800s, and he did a lot of evangelistic work outside of Scotland, he was in England on one occasion when his uh, when his father when he received word that his father had passed away, um, and during the the day of the funeral he was scheduled to continue to preach, and uh, people would have under he said people would have understood had I canceled and said I need to be back for my father's funeral, but he said I dared not cancel, for he felt like Christ was telling him now look you go and preach the gospel to those people. Would you rather bury the dead or raise the dead? And so he took this literally. I don't think we all have to take this literally, but Jesus is making the point 
that we must put him first. What is it that Jesus is looking for from his servants? Unqualified allegiance. He's looking for unqualified allegiance. He, want this, he wants this man to know the priority of discipleship. For this man, other priorities had come and taken place, uh, taken the place of Christ. Jesus wants him to know that his priorities need to be rearranged. Even closest family ties. And the Bible affirms the importance of family. The Bible affirms the importance of the relationship between a husband and wife and affirms the importance of uh, children honoring and obeying the parents and of parents caring for their children and raising them in the way of the Lord. The Bible affirms all these things. But this all comes under the umbrella of our allegiance to Jesus Christ. By way of illustration, you know, think of soldiers who... um, you know, whether in boot camp or in war or stationed on the other side of the world or whatever, they often miss out on significant family events and even funerals. Or think of missionaries. Um, you know, read of missionaries in history who have, uh, you know, it takes them a long time to get to their destination, it takes months to make their voyage to the country where they're going to minister. And then they don't return for a long time. Sometimes they don't return at all. Um, it's a little easier to make connections today with, you know, Zoom and cell phones and so on. But e- even today, you know, missionaries don't return, you know, for two, four years, whatever, and then they're, they're gone again. The priority of discipleship. The priority of discipleship. And think about this man's answer. Look at, look at what he says. The first word he says um, in verse uh, verse 21, when he approaches Jesus, he says, Lord. Now that is the right approach. He, he understands Jesus as Lord, as his master, as the one who can command him. He comes to him submissive. Um, but then he qualifies that with his next word. It says, Lord, first. First. First, I want to do this. You know, Lord, I acknowledge you as Lord, but first... Wait a minute, I got a little bit of lordship here. Here's what I want to do. <laughs> Here's my plan. Here's what I want to accomplish. You know, it's like first my agenda, then your agenda. First my stuff, then your stuff. Let me take care of this, and then I'm going to follow you. And the Lord corrects his understanding. No, you follow me. You just, you just confessed me as Lord, and now you're taking it back by saying first. You're making yourself the Lord of your life. Disciples put Jesus first. Disciples put Jesus first. So these are these two encounters, and I just want to draw out a few lessons from these two encounters with the scribe and the, the, uh, the son. Um, and maybe you've already applied some of this to your life already. I don't know, but let, let's go with these lessons here. Number one, we are disciples first. We are disciples first. As Christians, we are disciples first. As believers, we are disciples first. I am many things. I am a father. I'm a son. I'm a grandfather. We were, uh, uh, several of us were at a wedding last night, at a family wedding, you know, and I, I was wearing a lot of hats. I was, uh, I was a nephew last night. I was a cousin. I was a cousin two times removed. I was a cousin three times removed and a little bit given back, uh, you know, I was a, uh, yeah, I was a son, etc. You know, I, I wore a lot of hats last night. But I'm first and foremost a Christian. 
even above even above husband, I am a Christian. Um, I'm I'm an American citizen. I'm a, I'm a citizen of Indiana. I'm a Hoosier. But above that, I'm a Christian. Above those things, I'm a Christian. I'm a disciple first, a Christian first. And that should be reflected in my life. His glory, his will pleasing him, this should always be first in my life. Discipleship is not a part-time job. It's a perpetual assignment. It's not just a hobby or an add-on. Even the highest commitments like family come second. He is the best husband who loves Christ above all. She is the best wife who who loves Jesus above all, who loves Jesus most. And so number two, your faith should color every aspect. Your faith should color every other aspect of your life. If you're a Christian, you're a Christian husband. If you're a wife, you're a Christian wife. If you're a parent, you're a Christian parent. Some of your goals may be the same as other parents that you know that aren't Christians, but a lot of your goals will be different. I was talking with someone recently about a woman who is a who is a not a believer. She's a really good mom in a lot of ways, but in the most important way, she's not because she's not leading this child in the ways of the Lord. She's not teaching him about the Lord. You should be a Christian son or a Christian daughter. If you're a businessman or a woman, you're a Christian businessman or woman. You get the idea. Your faith should affect how you live out your various roles. If you're a coach, you're a Christian coach. If you're a teenager, you're a Christian teenager. And that means that you will live your life a lot different, or a little different, or a lot different, depending on the other teenagers you relate with. You're going to live your life different than them. Your goal is to be, is, is to, be to, to please Christ, not to be like everyone else. If you're a grandparent, you're a Christian grandparent. If you're a thief... It's time to change your profession. (laughs) You can't be a Christian thief. (laughs) You can't be a Christian liar. If liar is your profession, you need to change that. When I was a kid, uh, TV dinners, I I used to love... I love my mom's cooking. Now, don't get the wrong impression. But TV dinners were fun, and this was before microwaves. You know, and so mom would put them in the oven. I have no idea how long they took. But I always, I always liked TV dinners because usually TV accompanied the TV dinners too. That was, that was always fun. We had the TV trays, you know, that you put your TV dinners on in front of the TV. The chairs weren't TV chairs, but, you know. Anyway, so I, I, I enjoyed TV dinners. And, you know, every, every bit is in its own separate compartment, right? There's the meat. There's the green beans, there's the potatoes, and there's the mystery dessert up in the middle. Uh, That's what a TV dinner is. But that's a lot different than a pot pie, right? A pot pie, everything's together, you know. There's no separating. I mean, I guess you could separate it, but it's, it's, it's it's all together there. Our faith should be more like a pot pie faith as opposed to a TV dinner faith. Our faith shouldn't be in its own separate compartment. The other parts of our lives completely unaffected by our commitment to Jesus. Rather, our faith should be informing 
shaping, our faith should be flavoring every other aspect of our lives. You know, I, you, you've probably seen people, maybe at work, maybe a boss or a fellow employee or a neighbor or whatever, and you, and you see them, and then later you learn that they go to church, and you think, really? Because <laughs> you know? it's like they check their, their faith at the door when they walk into their place of business. That shouldn't be the case. Third lesson, following Jesus will cost you. Following Jesus will cost you. And Jesus is quick to point this out here. For the scribe, if he follows Jesus, he's going to find himself in some uncomfortable places. For the other man, if he follows Jesus, he's going to have to make some uncomfortable decisions. He may have to do some things that may strain family relations. He's going to have to do some things that may seem strange to his friends and his neighbors. For many of you, for many of you, you could tell us, you could come up here and tell us the way that your faith has cost you. I know for some of you, discipleship has earned you some laughter and derision from your family. And it's cost you closeness with some of your relatives. For some of you, it's cost you some friendships. And what if your faith costs you more than what it does now? Sarah's Uncle Max, hi Max, sent me an article. He sends me a lot of great articles. And he sent me an article recently um, where the author was arguing that the cost of discipleship is probably going to be elevated in our culture, in our society soon. And he was asking the question, what if it is? Are you prepared to pay that cost? Everything is being, everything in our culture is being turned on its head so that what is right is now called wrong and what is wrong is now called right. And if we're, continued, if we're going to continue to be committed to that which is truly right, but our culture is calling it wrong, guess what we're going to be called? We're going to be called wrongdoers. Our culture is going to see us as wrongdoers. What if, in order to keep your job, you are asked to affirm that which you know to be wrong? What if you are asked to celebrate that which you know to be sinful? And the author of this article says, Count the cost, Christian. It will cost you to follow Jesus no matter what cultural climate you find yourself in. It will cost you to be found faithful. It will cost you to stand for the truth. The question has never been if, but merely when. So following Jesus will cost you. It may be a small cost, and it may be a big cost. But, number four, the cost is worth it. The cost is worth it. Now, this passage that we're looking at focuses especially on the cost of discipleship. But we know from the context of Scripture that Jesus nonetheless calls us to follow him because the cost is worth it. The cost is worth it. The reward is far greater than the cost. Why do so many Christians endure great suffering on behalf of Jesus when all the suffering they are experiencing would be stopped if they would just renounce their faith? Why do they continue not renouncing their faith? Why do they continue on in their faith? It's because they know that there is a far greater reward. There is a far greater reward. When we get to heaven, 
and we experience the joys and the wonders of being in the presence of Christ and in the presence of sanctified believers like us, we're going to look back. We're going to look back at the suffering, at the trials, at the difficulty, no matter how sharp, how painful they were, and they're going to seem like nothing. They're going to seem like nothing compared to the glory that we will be experiencing in the presence of Christ. I'm not just extrapolating. I'm, I'm paraphrasing what Scripture says. Paul says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And we're talking about the Apostle Paul, whose light and momentary troubles included, included being caned, whipped, stoned, left for dead, imprisoned. Those were his light and momentary troubles. He calls them light and momentary troubles from the perspective of heaven. He's going to look back and say they're light and momentary troubles because those things are achieving for us what? A, a glory that far outweighs them all. The glory that we will have in walking with Christ despite the cost of discipleship will far outweigh the troubles that we experience in the, this life in order to be faithful to Christ. We need to live in light of eternity. final lesson the strength to endure is found in jesus the strength to endure is found in jesus the more so how do we pay the cost of discipleship i'm not i'm not saying you do it on your own you can't do it on your own you pay it in christ you abide in christ he helps you i shouldn't even use the word pay it you endure it in christ the more you abide in Jesus, the easier it is to follow him. The easier it is to be faithful to him. The easier it is to be more concerned about what God thinks than what all the talking heads think. The easier it is to stand for truth in a world of lies. The qualities that Jesus looks for from you, qualities like determined commitment and unqualified allegiance, these are qualities that he himself builds in you as you walk with him. He makes you into the disciple he wants the more time you spend with him. Remember Peter and John? They had their foibles. They had their mistakes. They had their blunders. We read about them in the Gospels. You know, Peter, within the space of an hour or two, denies Christ three different times. But there came a day when they were being threatened by the powers that be, and they stood their ground. Acts 4.13, look at Acts 4.13. When they, the antagonistic powers that be, observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men. They were amazed and recognized what? That they had been with Jesus. They recognized these guys had been with Jesus. You know, the, the, secret, the secret of Samson's strength was in his hair. But the secret of Peter and John's strength, it was really in the spirit, but, you know. The, but the secret of Peter and John's strength was in being with Jesus. And the same is true for you and me. John 15, Jesus says, The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. So just to wrap this up, summary. Three things, three aspects that I have sought to communicate from this passage. One is that discipleship is costly. There is a cost to it. But second, it is worth it. It's worth the price. It's worth the cost. And thirdly, Jesus will help you. Jesus will help you. The answer, the solution, is in walking with Christ on a daily basis. Some of you may be recognizing today that uh, 
You once had that kind of fervor, that kind of devotion, that bring it on kind of attitude, but you've kind of lost the edge. And life's gotten a little comfortable. The zeal may be not be there. The love you had at first may not be there. I just want to share with you that Christ is always ready to help you to move back to where you were at. The remedy is the same. Spend time with Christ. Revelation chapter 2, Jesus, the words of Jesus, he says, he says to the church in Ephesus, you know, I have this against you that you have abandoned your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. That's the answer. Jesus is ready and willing uh, to help you move from where you are now back to where you used to be when you first came to Christ, back to that zeal, back to that enthusiasm, back for that passion. I just want to encourage you, if you're, if you're feeling like, man, I've lost my edge or I've lost my fire, Christ is right there ready to help you to get that zeal back. Romans 12, 11, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. And you keep that spiritual fervor by keep going to him, confessing it. Lord, I'm not where I should be. Please help me. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. I praise you because you are the one who helps us to do what it is you've called us to do. And I pray, Lord, that you would help every one of us to do that, um, to all of us to count the cost and to be serving you with zeal. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing a responsive song um, to what we've just talked about.